around here. All right, well, welcome, uh, everyone. We're going to have a conversation uh, moderated uh, by Shelley Smith, Napa County Historical Society, here not in the building for the first time, but up here for the first time, I think, exactly. and Alex Brown, who has been in the building before today via Zoom. Uh, some of you will remember when she uh, joined us and JT Thompson at our Black History Month celebration in February of 2020, I believe it was. And uh, I will just turn it over to Shelly from the get-go. Well, hello, as um, Stephen said, I'm Shelly Smith. I'm the uh, director of the Napa County Historical Society downtown. For some of those of you who've been born and raised in Napa, we're in the big stone building on First Street, the Goodman Library. Uh, it is my pleasure and truly my privilege today to get to moderate this conversation with Alex Brown. Alex is a queer black librarian, local historian, a writer and an author. She's written two books on local history, uh, Lost Restaurants of Napa and Hidden History, which is focused on the marginalized communities of Napa County. With a BA in anthropology and sociology and a double masters in library and information science and US history, Alex's accolades include an Ignite Award and she is nominated for a Hugo. Alex's writing is wide ranging covering um, speculative fiction, young black literature. She works, she, they write for Tor.com, Locus Magazine, and NPR books, just to name a few. Alex also writes on a topic such as queerness, black history, librarianship, and pop culture. Please join me in welcoming Alex Brown. So I can see Alex behind you, and you can see Alex over me. <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, Alex and I share in common is this great uh, love of the vibrancy of history. And um, so today we've come to talk about uh, history not being monolithic, that most of us have learned a monolithic uh, history. We're in school, often bored you witless. Um, with just memorizing dates and names of people you could have cared less about unless you named your cat or your dog after them. Um, but anyway, those, those, those histories have been past us, but history is really, really, when it becomes vibrant, it's a diverse story. And so I'd like to ask Alex to just start us off by talking about how the books that have been written on lost restaurants and um, hidden history have broadened and made us see a much more diverse, a much more nuanced history of Napa. So Alex? Can Modern science will... Just a minute, we'll hear she's, they are, Quite regular. We know the technology works because we've tested it. <laughs> but for those of us that are experienced with Zoom, we also know that there's a lot of tabs and buttons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
can't hear you yet. We're working on it, yeah. So, yeah, there she goes. There. That's Alex's book. Uh, if you haven't read Lost Restaurants in Napa, you will truly enjoy it. Um, any of you who have lived here long enough know that there are lots of restaurants and, and quite frankly, dive bars that are no longer here. And Hidden History also talks about the, the marginalized communities. Can we hear you? Can you talk now? No, we still don't have Alex yet. Um, in Alex's book, now try it. Alex? Can Tell Alex to go back on screen and Technology, it's an amazing thing. When we write the history of technology, I hope we include all these disasters. <laughs> Makes it so much more fun. Anybody hear me now? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just gotta log off and log back on. <laughs> so, Alex, I'm just gonna repeat this. So, if you could talk about how your books, uh, Lost Restaurants and History, Hidden History, have really begun to change from just having a monolithic history of Napa County to a diverse and more nuanced history of Napa County. Yeah, um, so, uh, I'm trying to remember what I, what I said. Um, to back up just a little bit, when I wrote that, um, when I wrote my master's thesis for my, or my thesis for my US history master's, um, I, I wanted to write about Napa history, about black history in Napa. And so I started with all the books like everybody does, the Conways and the so on and so forth, and the Richard Dillon and yada yada. And, uh, it's like, oh, there's no, there's no black people in these books. Or there'd be like one mention of like some random black person who was like tagging along with some white people and you get a name, and, but nothing, nothing about them. Um, so I set aside, and I was um, running the research library at Napa County Historical Society at the time, so I had access to a lot of historical information. Um, so I set aside all the books, um, even a lot of the local history books, which uh, the local history books at the time were mostly covering like the civil rights era or like the mid 20th century African-Americans. Um, so I set aside a lot of those, although there were a couple that touched on some earlier black people. And I just went into like the local newspapers because I was like, if there's black people here, somebody's got to be reading about them. And sure enough, everybody was in the local papers. They were in some of the black newspapers from San Francisco. They're in the Register and the Journal and the, the Calistogan and all these newspapers. There's black people everywhere. They're all in the census records. They're just scattered, you know, we, we were everywhere. Um, we were here uh, before a lot of the white people were here. I mean, if you look back at the California era, the concept of race in the Mexican and Spanish era of Alta California is very different than the American concept of race. and that kind of fuels some of the conflict in the Bear Flag Revolt and all this stuff. So um, the last governor of California, Pio Pico, was black, you know. So once I started putting aside all of the set narratives of what Napa was and who was in Napa and actually started looking at what people who were living here at the time had to say about Napa, completely changed everything. Um, and so when I wrote the book, when I wrote uh, Hidden History, um, that was what I wanted to explore. Uh, I included one winemaker, but he's the winemaker that nobody knows about. <laughs> you know, he's John Patchett. He's this English immigrant that was the first commercial winemaker in Napa, but nobody knows about him. 
Um, but I, I, when I talked to History Press, I was like, I don't want to write a history of Napa. I, I want to write a history of the people who were here and the people who never get talked about. And she's like, okay, go ahead. And I was like, oh, yay. Um, so that was what I did. I, I really wanted to, we tell the same story about Napa over and over again. All of you in the audience could probably relate. George Yacht came here in the 1830s, blah, blah, blah. Charles Crew, blah, blah, blah. But they aren't the people that really built Napa. They don't get where they are without everybody else on the bottom doing the work. You don't get Napa as a world famous wine region without Chinese labor in the 19th century. You don't get Napa as a world famous wine region without the Broseros here in the 1940s. Like you just, it doesn't exist. But we don't talk about those people. Um, so, so that's kind of, it was easy to find that information and it was kind of shocking and frustrating to me that we acted like that information didn't exist for you know a century. And it was so easy to find. Like I just went into the CDNC and typed in black and Napa and boom, there was everybody. Um, so yeah, I think that answered your question. Yeah, that does. I think, well, I think most people think of history, as I said, it's being dry. You memorize lots of dates. You, it's a very descriptive history. Bob came here, Bob went there but you don't see that Bob had seven other people who helped him get here or get there anywhere he was going. Um, and so, but we also tell kitchen table stories. You all have them. Every single family in Napa has a story they tell over and over again about Uncle Tito and Tia Maria, whoever they're telling the story about, they tell it over and over again. And those mythologies actually uh, mythology comes out of those stories. We get more loyal to the story than the actual facts. So, so uh, Alex, um, can you give us some examples of mythological stories that have gained, you know, momentum over time, um, and then we just all believe them? I, I think you mentioned um, Charles Krug. Uh, we all think of Charles Krug as the first uh, vintner in Napa Valley, but yet it was John Patchett. But there are other stories. Can you maybe enlighten us about some of the other stories that we might change after we hear? <laughs> yeah, um, well, one of them that I, I wrote about in the book I, uh, is what happened to Chinatown in downtown Napa. Um, <laughs> the story is, is that there, there just weren't a lot of Chinese people here. And then they happily moved out so, so Napa could beautify the river. And that's the end of the story. Um, and that's the story that's printed in the Napa Register. That's the story that I heard when I first got to the Historical Society. That was a story I heard on the tours a lot of times. I, now, now that you know, the conversation has kind of been picked up, especially post-book, um, that conversation I'm, I'm sure is changing on the Riverfront tours. But at the time when I got there in the mid-2010s, like the story was, yeah, the Chinese people just left. The, the few people that were here just left and we beautified the river and blah, blah, blah. And that's not the story. The, the Chinese family that was still living here, the, the Chan family, Chan Wa Jack had been in Napa since at least 1850, if not slightly earlier, was one of the founding families of Chinatown. His descendants still live in the area. Um, and they were driven out. Like they found out that, they, that the city was pushing them out. Uh, but we don't tell that story. And they, they, there were oral stories that I found, and there were articles in the paper, and there were conversations that the descendants of the family had had about their experience of being forced out of their homes. So Napa could bulldoze everything to build a yacht club that never came to fruition, and then the land just sat empty for until it you know, was destroyed in the last big flood. But 
you know, we built this mythology and then it makes us all sound great and tolerant and wonderful and Napa's such a hospitable place and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, no, what? Did you listen to what the people have to say? Because who's telling the story and who's pushing up the story? That's like, I mean, not to get too tangential, but that's why I find the loss of a lot of local newspapers so frustrating and thinking about who's telling those stories and what stories are they allowed to tell and why we're committed to those stories. So it's really important like when you're engaging with stories on race, think about you know, which paper is telling that story, which journalist is telling that story, whose voices are being represented in those articles and like what is the conversation being had because that stuff becomes history. Um, so yeah, that's that's one of those stories that I tell a lot. I mean, I, we could talk about indigenous people too. We talk about how the indigenous people were here and then they died and uh, that's the end of the story and there's a grinding stone in front of the courthouse <laughs> and that's all we say. But we don't talk about how the uh, US military actually did extermination campaigns. Like they rode up and down the valley executing any indigenous person they could find uh, connected to the Kelsey rebellion um, and even though they didn't have anything to do with it, to the point that some of the locals, the Americanos who were here were like, what are you doing? Don't do that. And they did, they executed people. You could read about you know, the Bloody Island Massacre. None of that gets part of the story. Um, none of that gets, is part of the mythology that we tell about the valley. So Alex, what about the, the reverse of that? We also see the reverse of it. Um, people burning down, um, burning down restaurants, um, did that happen? I mean, I'm thinking of Margaret, um, I believe her name was Miller, Margaret Miller's restaurant, um, the arcade. Um, so if we just look at the facts and not the mythology on either side, what do we see? Well, that's kind of a tricky situation. Um, there's a similar situation that happens in Mill Valley too, where the first black family uh, in Mill Valley, uh, their home burned down and there's a sort of an underground um, mythology that it was arson related. Um, and I did a lot of research into that. I did a lot of research into the arcade restaurant. I don't, I don't see any evidence that says it was arson. A lot of restaurants burned down on Main Street at the time, all the time. They're wood buildings. I mean, if you look through the paper, there's like a fire almost every week on, on Main Street. Um, a fire was what took out uh, Hotel Napa, which is um, I can't, I don't know what's there now, but it was the, it's the corner directly opposite of the Starbucks, um, sort of the, um, across from the little mural there. That used to be the Hotel Napa, fire burned that down too. Um, a couple of times if I remember. So I didn't see any evidence in the local paper or anything else that said that it was arson. Arson is mentioned in other um, cases, but that doesn't mean that it's not. Uh, again, like I said, local newspapers, you don't know who's telling the story, especially back then. Nothing was, you know, there's no authors or anything back then or uh, journalists named on those, those papers. Um, there could have been, it could have been arson. It could have been anything, you know, uh, family history. I think with the Hatton family, some say that it is arson or was arson. Some say that it wasn't. I didn't see any evidence that suggested that it wasn't, but also you know, just because there's not evidence doesn't mean that it's not true. There was no evidence that the you know, Chan family was pushed out of Chinatown until I found them talking about it. So you never know. Yeah, I think that facts are facts, but they don't tell us all the things. I mean, you can get a person, you can dig up a, a bone or a, uh, a, um, 
an artifact and you just have an artifact. Infusing it with the story the behind it is much more difficult. And I think, you know, to your point, the Hattons were a family here, a very early family, 49ers um, of California, and yet um, we, we know the fact, the building burned down, but we do not know whether it was arson or whether it just burned down because they left the pot going too long in the kitchen. Um, and so those are things we have to be, I think, really, really careful when we infuse the story we want to tell, that we use the facts n not to just create, create a, a new mythology. Um, yeah, one of the things that, so you mentioned earlier, Shelley, that history is often taught like dates and names and battles and numbers and things like that. That was how I learned about history and I actually really hated history <laughs> until I started studying it. Um, because for me, history is about the people and it's about the story. Um, this is gonna sound a little funky coming from a historian, but I don't actually so much care about the facts. I'm interested in the stories that people are telling, why they're telling that story, and what the context is around that story. So to me, the most interesting thing about the arcade restaurant burning down isn't why did it burn it? What was the cause of the fire? For me, the more interesting thing is how the local paper reported it, how the Hatton family talks about it. Why do they believe that it was arson? What else was going on with the Hatton family at the time in the 19th century and today that leads them to that conclusion. Um, it was the same thing with the, the Mill Valley fire. There was a lot of good reason to believe that the, the fire and at that particular house for that particular family was arson because there was so much racism at the time, still today, but like there were, there were a lot of context around it. So what else was going on in the Hatton family that does not show up in the records for obvious reasons, but that is part of that family lore that brings those, those family members to the conclusion that it was arson. That's what interests me as a historian. That's what I want to explore because that's where the, you know, whether you want to call it truth or fact or whatever, that's where all the, the reality lies, is what is the context around it? We all interpret scenarios differently, but the real history for me is how we experience those and how we talk about them. So we've had history, you know, there's been historians, um, since Plato, <laughs> probably before. But there's been people who've always wanted to write about history. Um, and, but today, we have a unique, I guess, our reservoir is expand, of, of information is expanding exponentially. I've read, and so has Alex, lots and lots of histories. And it was based on what they could go and find themselves in the archives. And yet today, we have the digitization of information. So I can go up on the web and find somebody's birth certificate from 1600 um, without ever going to New Mexico or England or something. So Alex, talk a little bit to us about how this new digitized infusion of new data is really um, allowing us to create more bigger, to your point, bigger nuanced story, really that infusing the story with a lot more vibrancy. Yeah, I mean, I could not have written either book without the internet, uh, particularly the restaurants book, because it was so rooted in um, like what we were eating and things like that and sort of the food history and culinary history of the valley. Um, I relied very heavily uh, on the the Napa Library uh, several years ago digitized a lot of their microfilm of the Napa Register, which was great because when I wrote my master's thesis, I just had to sit there on the microfilm 
And so I was in there actually, I would walk over after the historical society, after I was working there, and I'd spent you know, two or three hours in the microfilm at the library. Um, so I was very grateful that it was online. Um, you know, I mentioned the CDNC, it's the California Digital Newspaper Collection, and they carry a lot of digitized newspapers from across the state, including the black newspapers from San Francisco that I used. Um, I did use a lot of Ancestry.com. Uh, it's, I mean, the internet is a wonderful thing. I was able to contact, you know, historical societies in Missouri looking for African Americans and trying to like place people and figure out what was going on. Um, but there is also another side of it, particularly with Ancestry. I mean, you've got to, nothing is free on the internet anymore, um, even if it looks like it's free. Um, so you have to think about all that information that's now on Ancestry. It's great, and it's great for me for my family history, but who controls that information? The Mormon Church controls that information. And actually now, BlackRock, I believe, is the one that controls the information. All that DNA that we put up to find our family members, well, it all just got sent off to a, a, a for-profit military company who contracts and with the police and is now sharing our DNA with law enforcement. So <laughs> there's a lot of like pro and con to the internet um, that challenges me as somebody who works on the internet and relies very heavily on the internet. Um, but a lot of that information is there. If you are doing your family history and you're in California, you have a number of resources. If you are trying to do it outside California, it gets trickier. Um, but check with the local public libraries. A lot of them have digitized their local papers. Um, there's a lot of government documents that are digitized. You know, So there's lots of stuff that's out there. Um, and there's stuff that's out there that wasn't out there when these big famous authors were writing their histories about all the rich white dudes in Napa. So um, now's your chance to change the story. Well, I think too that um, things are continually being digitized. So, uh, if we were, if if Alex was to go back and rewrite hidden history, um, it, it may. Once you're five years out today, it's like you're 50 years out, 50 years ago, because things are, our information is coming out at such a fast rate that um, that you really do. I mean, I've written things that a year later, a piece of information comes up, and now what I've written needs to be rewritten because mm -hmm. to really make it that vibrant or that that current um, perspective. Uh, so I think that's that's to Alex's point. You need to be careful and understand how you research online, but you also need to be able re aware that it's always changing. It's not a static thing any longer. So. That brings us kind of around to our original kind of topic now that we're going to want to start. So as you rewrite history, Alex, as you um, create these new nuanced stories, um, does everyone all get up and, you know, start the dance, you know, the, the gridiron dance, or do you get lots of pushback sometimes? Or is it an even, some people push back, some people accept it? What, what do you think? So a little bit of both. Um, I would say it's definitely more more on the positive side, but uh, yeah, there's some people that have not enjoyed <laughs> um, me telling other people's stories about Napa. Um, and honestly, that's fine. They're allowed to not like it. It doesn't change anything. You cannot like the fact that there were black people in Napa in the 19th century. It doesn't change the fact that they were here and they were doing stuff and they were active and involved in the founding of the city. Um, so you cannot like whatever you want. And I would also, I also think 
you know, you can have the conversation with like the Confederate memorials or taking down Columbus's statues in San Francisco, things like that. It doesn't, like I said, it doesn't erase that history. You know, you can still love Charles Krug and you can also acknowledge that his wife was more important to the business. It was her bail bill. Like, you know, and it's, it's her property and her mother's property. Like the, you know, Maria Sobranes was much more crucial to the winery business and to the Upper Valley than, you know, Edward Bale or, or Charles Krug. You can have, you can hold both of those in the same hand. Um, you know, you can talk about racism in Napa. You can talk about all of the good people in Napa who donated to the first black church and who fought in the civil rights movement and the Selma bus you know, marches and all that. And you can also hold in the, in the other hand, the fact that, you know, my mother in the, in the 80s was struggling to find a house because nobody would sell to her. You know, the, both of those things can be true at the same time. And if you find yourself being in a position where new information or new perspectives are challenging your old perspectives, sit with that discomfort. Um, what, I do a lot of DEI work and one of the things that I always talk to people about is that DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, if you are moving through that process and feeling safe and comfortable all the time, then you are not moving through that process. DEI is uncomfortable. It's hard. I am queer. I am black. I am not cis, I am a variety of things. I am a, I'm disabled and a variety of marginalizations. And it's uncomfortable for me too, because there are areas where I come up against something where I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that was causing harm. I need to fix that. And that's what history should be too. History is uncomfortable. You know, we, we bring our current perspectives to it and then we wanna apply those to 18th, 19th century and we can't always do that. You know, we can't always do that with conversations of what queerness was like before, you know, 2023. We can't do that with what blackness was like and how African-Americans felt about their race or ethnicity. And so it's going to, there's gonna be some uncomfortable moments and that's okay. The point for it, for history, for me, should be to sit with that discomfort, figure out why you're uncomfortable and figure out if you can either move through that or try to try to grow with that. Or if that discomfort is just something that you don't want to deal with and you're not ready to process that, then maybe put it in a parking lot and come back to it later. But history's gonna be uncomfortable. If you're doing it right and you're engaging with it and you're coming at it with an open mind, hit those walls and try to find a way to scale over them. That brings us then to the next thing, <laughs> which I think <laughs> if if you have a reaction to how history is told, any reaction at all and I think this is what Alex is saying, that's the right thing. It might not be a good reaction and it might be a great reaction, but the fact is, if you're reacting to it, then you're taking it in and thinking about it. And it may not be what you expected, and it may not be what you are comfortable with in terms of history, but recognizing it and processing it into your own history makes then your world understanding get more nuanced and better, which I think brings us to kind of the last point today, which uh, I'd like to talk about with Alex is that we have a, all of us know this, we, somewhere in our lives there's a sticky floor and there's a glass ceiling. Not always are they there together, but sometimes we're on the sticky floor and sometimes we hit the glass ceiling. Um, but history, 
as something that's vibrant and changing and informative can really help us understand situations that we are faced with today that are very modern that we might be able to look at slightly differently and come up with a more responsive, much more inclusive answer if we actually look back at history. So Alex, could you talk to us a little bit about about using history to inform decision-making today? Yeah, I mean, I don't believe that you can make policy or changes. You can't do DEI, you can't do any of that without actually understanding the history that you have. I mean, the history is the foundation. The history of Napa, that is our foundation. And if we are operating under a faulty foundation or pretending like there is no foundation, then whatever we do in the future is not gonna matter. You have to understand your, your past in order to be able to understand and have context for your present and then in order to be able to build to the future that you want. You, you cannot start without, his, without understanding the history. And I think it's so important that we do that and that we understand, uh, you know, we're talking about reparations. California is trying to, to work on reparations. And I'm very excited about that. I would like to have some reparations, please. Um, especially since my ancestors came out of Florida and uh, that's not gonna happen from Florida anytime soon. But, um, you know, when you're talking about reparations and, and um, Bruce's Beach down in South, here, in, I'm in Southern California, Bruce's Beach is a hot topic right now. Um, talking about the Hatton family, they, uh, you know, they own property, but many African-Americans owned property across the Napa Valley um, in the 19th century. And, you know, what would have happened? How would the valley have been different? How would the story of African-Americans been different in Napa if they had kept their land, if they hadn't sold it or stopped renting it or whatever it may be, um, or it was taken? I know it's part of the conversation right now, wondering what happened to some property. But what would have been different? In the 1870s, I believe 1860s, there were 10 black families that had large, that had more than 10 acres surrounding Napa City. How would we be different? Um, if we hadn't hit the economic glass ceiling of not being able to get better jobs, I mean, if you look at the census records, you can watch the, the decline in job variety for African-Americans in Napa County. You know, we had all these jobs and interesting things we could do still not great jobs. I mean, you could be a blacksmith, you could be a barber, you could be, um, you know, a horse racer, you could be all these other things, but you couldn't like own a business. Uh, you could not have a pharmacy, things like that. But you see that, that decline so that by, you know, the 1900s and certainly by the 1940s, the only African, you know, but, but in the early 20th century, the only African-Americans that are in Napa are all working domestic service jobs. They're all chauffeurs. If you were a man, you could be a chauffeur or a gardener. And if you're a woman, you could be a nurse or a maid. Like that was it. That's, you know, like the five black people that are here in the forties pretty much are, you know, one of those things. And so when you hit that ceiling, I mean, there were African-Americans, even in the, in the 1860s, there was an intentional push to create a black community in Napa, similar to what was in Marysville and Sacramento and San Francisco uh, and later in Los Angeles. And they couldn't because they couldn't get the land, they couldn't get the jobs, they couldn't get people back then. Napa was all the way out in the middle of nowhere. We didn't have any black communities, we didn't have a black neighborhood, we didn't have black owned businesses or bars that catered just to black people. You know, we had, I think, one black owned bar and it was in um, what is now like the, the Pueblo street area, Pueblo Avenue area, um, and that was a really considered, that was considered a really bad part of town. 
Um, so if you were respectable, you couldn't go there. So you didn't have any community. So we hit that economic and that social glass ceiling as early as the 1860s. And so you can't get new black people coming in. You wanna know why there's so few black people in Napa today? And you wanna know why so many of us, myself included, have left Napa? Even though I grew up there, I moved there when I was 18 months old and lived most of my life there. The reason, there's a reason that we're not there. There's a reason that all of the 19th century African-Americans left pretty much except for one family. Um, that's all rooted in the history. So if you're gonna try to build DEI policies and anti-black policies in Napa today, if you wanna try to work on that today, you have to understand how we got to where we are today. There's very good reasons why there are not black people in, not a lot of black people in Napa today. And why the African-Americans that are in Napa today, why it's generally like a certain economic level and things like that, like you look at the second, um, the second great migration and the wave coming in in the 1970s and 80s. When my mother moved here, I think there were 14 black people in the city. <laughs> you know, there's a reason that a lot of that generation, you know, married in with white people or associated with so many white people. I mean, there's, there's reasons for things. They don't just happen magically out of nowhere. There's always a reason for it. And you can trace that back to history. Great. <laughs> Fantastic, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Um, yes, so, and, an, and an example, I guess, for the sticky floor is we would not allow uh, the Chinese to bring their families over or to own businesses. We wanted to keep them as stoop labor in Napa Valley, so they couldn't even get off the sticky floor to buy land or do anything. Imagine if the Chinese could buy land in Napa, um, as pointed out, what would Napa look like today? Napa would look oh, yeah, yeah. very... Nobody could own property in Napa. It's, um, when you look at the arson up in Calistoga, there, if you actually look through the newspapers of the China, after the Chinatown was burned down, the Chinese, or excuse me, just before the Chinatown was burned down, there's this whole like, you know, ordinances and laws trying to push them out. And the Chinese community was actually like raising money and trying to buy the property from the owners in Calistoga. They're like, here, we have a white lawyer, we'll buy it. And they wouldn't even sell, like, you know, you know, pay over market value to the Chinese. You could not own land. And yeah, how different would we have been? I mean, there are thousands of Chinese people in Chinatown during harvest season. Imagine how different the valley would have looked if Chinese immigrants had been able to buy, you know, land in downtown Napa for Chinatown or out in the valley. It would be an entirely different, and not necessarily a bad difference. It would just be very different. Yeah, I think this is a... Thank you for the conversation, Alex, because this is a great conversation to have. I think uh, we have to continue to have it. There is no one in this valley who is not the descendant of someone who immigrated into this valley. And we, I'm going back thousands and thousands of years. This is not, this is not the cradle of civilization. <laughs> so Immigrated or brought in, because remember that we're enslaved people who yeah. brought Napa in the 18th. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the fact is people came, they, they came here um, from about 12,000 years ago on. And, and, and so being able to look at that and being able to see it through those crucibles of, or lenses, I think really changes how we begin to look at how our community can go forward to Alex's point. What do we create? Where do we create economic help? Um, and, and, and things that make people feel welcome. 
so that it's an inclusive place rather than exclusive. And Alex is not the only one who left Napa as a teenager um, because there was very little to do here for a young girl except be a teacher, a nurse, uh, or marry a vintner. <laughs> and, that was, and that's me. <laughs> so, you know, I also left Napa for, for the opportunities that could be in other places. So I'd like to thank Alex. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I hope you guys have many, many more of them. And thank you so much for inviting me to be the moderator. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. How about, a, how about a shameless plug for the Napa County Historical Society? I'll put you on the spot. Uh, oops. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. OK. Uh, well, yes, I'll be shameless. Um, if you are not a member of the Napa County Historical Society, please consider being one. We are kind of, we have fun. We, in the summertime, we do historic walks of downtown Napa. Today is one at 3 p.m. We are going to be talking about the women that were behind the scenes. So one of those monolithic histories that we get told about Napa is that um, Charles Krug did this, but as Alex pointed out, it was really Carolina uh, Bale who brought the land to uh, Charles Krug. Um, and her mother, Maria Soberanes Bale, true buddy, Peabody, went on and on. She was married four times, I think. Um, she is the first commercial venture in the valley. She ran the Bale Mill. Uh, but we don't hear those stories. It was Edward Bale who had the Bale Mill, you know? It was, um, it was a guy named Crowey who started the Opera House, and yet the silent partner was a woman named Helen Hogan, and she ran the Napa Hotel there on the corner of First and Main. So these are those stories that begin to infuse the history of Napa, and we do these walking tours of downtown Napa, and we do ones of Tulake Cemetery um, throughout the summer. And then in October, if you don't have your tickets, you really should get them. We do Spooktacular at Tulake. Uh, we have our, uh, people there, musicians, everybody playing roles, and I lie through my teeth, and we have a great time. Um, and so we, those are really fun. Those are our walking tours when the weather's good. In the wintertime, we have six um, uh, lectures, and we partner our lectures with unique places. So uh, we might put our lecture in the Native Sons Hall, or the Opera House, or the 80-year-old Yacht Club, or the Uptown Theater, or the Cameo. And so it's really fun. So you get to go to really cool places and hear a Charlie Rose kind of conversation like we're having here with really interesting authors and artists and just fun, fun, fun. Um, we also have two exhibits a year. We research exhibits to go under the big, broad understanding of who tells our story. Um, this is a five-year uh, program that the Historical Society works on. Uh, right now, we have Shouting Down the Wind. It's 200 years of pioneering women. So there is Maria Sobranes is in this show, but so is Elaine St. Clair, the only person in the United States to have be both a brewmaster and a winemaker certified. Um, so there's pioneering women for you. And so you should come and see it. We're free to the public. We're open five days a week, uh, Tuesday through Saturday. 
uh, and we would love for you to be a member of the Historical Society. The second plug, if you will allow me, is that history is only as good as you are. There are big, huge holes in history, big gaps we don't know. And it's because we have no, no information. And a historical society like us depends on you giving information, pictures of your family, um, documents your family might have, books your family might have collected about Napa Valley or coming to Napa or something you did in Napa. Um, you know, we have probably, we, we um, have about anywhere from 600 to 1600 inquiries a month about Napa and people will come and say, do you have a picture of my house? I live on, I live in one of the alphabet streets and we'll look and we'll say no and they'll go, well, why don't you have a picture of my house? And I'll say, did you give us one? Did your grandmother give you one? You know, um, have you shared this with us? Because if you share with us, then we can share with the rest of the population. But if you don't share, we don't know, and it's lost. So if you have historic imagery of your family, um, and you, you don't want to give up the picture, but you can give up the image, we will digitize the image for you, put it within our collection, our searchable collection, and then your history gets bigger, and our history as a collective whole of Napa gets bigger. Thank you. Well said. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And it's, uh, it's free to walk through the doors of the Goodman Library. And uh, Alex Brown's book is there, both of them. Uh, so I encourage you to go do that. They've been in the back of the sanctuary in the past and will be in the future. I um, want to thank everybody for coming. And for those of you that may be new to Crosswalk, you may not know that we're the first Baptist church of Napa, founded in 1860. 1860. So we've been around a lot of this time, and we have our own history uh, to share, but crosswalkers like you have been part of this community for 163 years now, and it's phenomenal. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. Sure, you have our Lord. All right, let's, let's pray our, our prayer. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, who are here and everywhere, may your divine commonwealth come. May your will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound, where well-being and deep peace thrive. Strengthen us for the work to which we are called. Amen. May it be so. Enjoy your week. Stay cool.